Would you please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1? We're going to be reading the first 14 verses there, um, and then we'll be moving over to Exodus chapter 2 um, as well this morning. And so just kind of head that direction. My mom has already texted me and apologized for messing up children's sermon, to which I responded, all's good, I love you, thanks for being a good sport. I have the best mom ever. <laughs> um, she got no warning on that, um, of which I will hear about later. Uh, but uh, I knew that I could do that. I, I, like I said, I'm very thankful for my mom and uh, my dad too and, and how they raised me and uh, great, great people. Exodus chapter 1, though, as we start this new sermon series uh, looking at a book that is at one, in one time, in one hand, very, very familiar, and at the other hand, maybe very, very unfamiliar. Familiar in the sense that even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably have heard the Ten Commandments. You've probably heard of Moses. Um, you may have heard of the plagues on Egypt or the parting of the Red Sea. And so in that sense, it's very, very familiar. In another sense, it's very, very unfamiliar. Uh, we don't dig into the back half of Exodus very often. We kind of hit Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, and we say, good, they're out. Everything's good. And we forget about all the rest of the stuff uh, that happens in Exodus. We kind of peace out before we ever get to that point. Um, and so I'm excited to come to the book of Exodus uh, in part because it is so familiar, and it's good to, to read those familiar stories and the, that familiar history, um, but it's also good for us to, to go through the whole thing and see some new things, I pray, um, and some new uh, experiences of what the Lord is trying to share with us and uh, what he, what, how he interacts with his people. Um, hopefully, hopefully you found Exodus chapter 1, and so if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning, Exodus chapter 1, we're going to read the first 14 verses, and then we're going to switch over, we're going to move over to chapter 2 and read the last few verses of that chapter. So Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians who were in dread of the people of Israel. So the, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Turning over to chapter 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we come before you and we thank you that you have remembered. Father, that you remember us every day, every moment. That you see where we're at. You see where we, what we need. That you provide it. That you offer it. Father, that you walk with us. Father, we pray as we go through this passage this morning. Lord, you would open our eyes to our own need. You open our hearts to your invitations. And Lord, that we would desire to walk closely with you. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you. You're going to notice this morning, and I hope that you'll bear with me, um, I don't know what I got into or what's going on, but I have somehow got into allergies, and so it feels like somebody has stuffed cotton balls in my ears and up my nose, and my eyes are watering. And so, yeah, it's been a fun week. Um, But that all being said, uh, please excuse me, you're probably going to hear me cough, you're probably going to hear me sniffle quite a bit. Um, but uh, I'm, all that being said, I'm excited to be in Exodus with you. I'm excited about Exodus in part because of what we already shared with you, but also because I don't think we always, when we look at the book of Exodus, understand all of the connections that are happening in Exodus. The book of Exodus um, as a whole is, is a foreshadowing in so many ways of what God wants to do for his people, not just Israel, but what God's going to do for the church Andrew Wilson in his book, uh, Exodus, Echoes of Exodus, says this. He says, this story of going into slavery, experiencing difficulty and suffering, being rescued, often with blood, often overnight, coming out of the water, and then going to a place of safety and inheritance mirrors a repeated biblical narrative, both before Exodus, in Genesis, through the Gospels, and into Revelation. Even to this day, when we take the Lord's Supper, baptize a person, discipline a, disciple a person, sorry, disciple a person, preach the gospel, or we talk about resurrection, or we are doing Exodus-like things. We're communicating that the Lord's Supper echoes the Passover meal that they had, and baptism echoes the experience that they had through the sea. The whole story of the Christian life is effectively an Exodus story in a different key. And so it's massive to understanding the Old Testament and to understanding everything that Scripture is telling us about what Jesus has done and who we are. Suffice to say, uh, what he is saying there is correct. In uh, having a deeper study or understanding of Exodus, which we hope to have here at the, the end of the next the, this sermon series, that we hope that in having that deeper understanding of Exodus, we will also have a deeper understanding of who Jesus Christ is and what he, desire, what he has done for us and what he desires to do for us. As we go through this, this book, though, I want you to be aware and start kind of training your mind to begin to look for some of these things, okay? So to look for how the Exodus attaches itself to the church, okay? 
And so as you do the reading plan throughout the week, as you talk in Sunday school, as we go through the sermons together, be looking for how, be looking for some of these ways of how Exodus foreshadows what's happening in the church. And so we're just going to go through a few of these things to look for. One, one of the things that you're going to see repeatedly in Exodus <coughs> is the idea of slavery. For Israel, slavery was a very physical thing, right? It was, it was hardship. It was burden and physical labor and under an oppressor. For us in the New Testament, and really for all of humanity, that slavery is not that physical oppressor, but rather it is slavery to sin. Paul tells us, and we're going to talk about this more a little bit later, Paul tells us that we are slaves to sin, that we gave up our bodies, that, that, slave, that sin may manifest itself in us. Second, not only is there the idea of a slave, a slavery, but there's also an idea of redeemer. In Exodus, it's Moses. In the New Testament, for us, it's Jesus Christ, one who has been chosen, one who comes to set his people free and to declare good news. We also have the idea of rescue by blood. In Exodus, it's the Passover lamb. Okay, you have the last of the ten plagues. Uh, the angel of death comes, and the firstborn are, are die. Okay. Um, in, and except for the Israelites, they take the blood of the lamb, the innocent lamb, and they spread it over the doorpost, and the, the angel of death passes over them. They are spared that outcome. They're saved. For us, it's not the blood of a, a lamb. It's the blood of the lamb, of Jesus Christ. We are all under the curse of death, and yet Jesus' blood on the cross, if we will accept it, if we will have it cover our lives, then we, are, we will be saved, we'll be freed from that. We have the idea of passing through water. In Exodus, it's the Red Sea, okay? They're trapped, there's no way out. Um, their backs are up against the wall, and God opens the Red Sea. They pass on dry ground. When the Egyptians try to follow, it closes back over them, and it completely destroys their enemy. In the same way, in the same way, we, though we don't walk through a literal sea, we are baptized in water, symbolizing the death of an old life, an old way of living, and the entrance into a new life that is much more glorious. So we pass through water. There's travel. In the Old, Test in, in the old Testament, in Exodus, we have the travel of the Egyptians through the desert. After passing through the water, they go to Sinai and then on to the promised land. We know that that journey is not always easy. In fact, it's kind of a circle at times. There's quite a bit of change that happens in that, in that travel. In the same way, we as Christians, we are born again, but God doesn't call us immediately home, okay? You don't get baptized and immediately go to heaven. <coughs> but rather, there's a journey that God takes you on. And we continue to walk through this broken world headed for something far better and then, of course, uh, when you look at Exodus, you can't escape from the idea of the promised land, that God has created a home for his people, and he is calling them and leading them to that home. In the same way, we don't have a physical home in the sense of, uh, you know, we're going to start a new country, but so much more, God is calling us towards his presence, and we look forward to one day there being a new earth and a new heavens that are perfect with no more disease and no more death, with no more goodbyes. 
And so we have, in that sense, very real sense, a promised land that we are all headed and traveling towards. And so in the, all of these ways and so many more, Exodus is foreshadowing the great and glorious things that God wants to do for his people, for us. And so throughout this sermon series, we're going to be making these connections of, okay, God did this for Israel. How does that apply for us today? Of course, that all starts in Exodus chapter 1. And seeing the state that we find Israel at from the beginning. It, as we, we see them, and very clearly, in Egypt. We see them there in this foreign country, this nation um, that had grown under, uh, under the, the watchful eye, in many ways, of Pharaoh. And so, two questions come up. One, how did they get to Egypt? Okay, in order to understand Exodus, you have to ask the question, how did Israel end up in Egypt in the first place? And then you have to ask a second question, which is how did the nation of Israel end up slaves? Okay, it's one thing for them to end up in this country. It's quite another thing for them to end up in slavery. I have often asked the question when I travel around the world, how did I get here? Okay, in fact, sometimes when I travel to Arkansas or Kansas, I ask, how did I get here? Okay, um, but very rarely does the second question come up of how did I become a slave, okay? I've never had that experience. To understand the first question, you have to go back to the, that first part of the passage that we just read. The names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own household. Then he lists the sons, and then it says something important. It says Joseph was already in Egypt. To understand how Israel got to Egypt in the first place, why any of this ever even happened, you have to understand the story of Joseph. If you go back to Genesis, the last part of Genesis is all about this guy named Joseph. You see, Joseph was one of 12 brothers, all belonging to a guy named Jacob, whose name later would be changed to Israel. Joseph was his dad's favorite, um, and he gave him gifts that he didn't give the other brothers, and he doted on him in a way that he didn't the other brothers. Not only that, but Joseph had special skills and abilities that God had blessed him with, the problem was that when Joseph was young, Joseph kind of lorded that over the other brothers. And so you can understand that over time, the brothers became kind of bitter and kind of jealous. And so long story short, some of the older brothers decided, you know what, we're done with all of this mess. And so they grab Joseph, they tear off a coat that his dad had given him, they throw him in a well, they sell him to slave traders, they go home and they, they tear the coat, put blood on it and say, sorry dad, your son's gone. It's a horrible thing to do, Okay. A horrible, horrible thing to do. But Joseph, that's how Joseph ends up in the hands of slave traders. Make another long story short, those slave traders take him to Egypt. He's sold and he goes from being a slave to being the second most powerful person in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. It's while he's in that position that God makes it clear that a famine is coming. And so Joseph, um, by the wisdom of God, saves grain for seven good years so that when the famine comes that he can distribute that grain. During that time, Jacob and the, the other brothers hear that there's food in Egypt, so they travel there. While they're there, Joseph realizes who they are, and an incredible act of divine grace, he forgives his brothers. He forgives them, and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And he invites his brothers and he invites his father Jacob to come live with him. Okay? 
And so Pharaoh gives them a piece of land. The Pharaoh that is in power when, when Joseph is there gives them an incredible piece of land. They're able to have pasture for their livestock and to grow their family. The beginning of Exodus tells us that when they moved into Egypt, the family was about 70, okay? Melissa's extended family is bigger than Israel at this point, okay? We're not talking about a nation here. We're talking about a good-sized family. Exodus is then the story of how we go from a family to how we go to the people, the nation of God, okay? So there's this, this thing. So that's how they get to Egypt. But you've got to ask the question, if Joseph is such an important person and Joseph did such wonderful things, then how do they end up slaves? Well, the answer to that, oops, the answer to that is a different king, okay? There's a different pharaoh, and I'm not going where I want to go. There we go. There's a new pharaoh. That sentence in verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. That's a simple enough sentence for us to read. What we sometimes forget is that sentence covers 300 years, okay? There's about 300 years from Joseph uh, and, and his brothers coming to Egypt until this new Pharaoh arises. So you can understand now that it's not just merely a generation or two before, since Joseph has been there. It's multiple generations. It's multiple centuries now have passed and this new Pharaoh comes to power, and all he knows is that there is this foreign people living among the Egyptians who are growing like crazy. They're, they are having kids like crazy, and they are growing in numbers, and they are growing in importance inside of Egypt. You see, Egypt kind of served as an incubator for Israel. Israel comes, they're a small family of about 70 people, all said and done, and they can't defend themselves. They can't take care of themselves. And so God takes them for a time and he places them in Egypt and says, you're going to be safe here. And so they're protected by the most powerful nation in the world. And so they, they multiply, they grow, they become not just a family, they become a nation. But, this, but there's a thing here that happens. You see, Egypt's never supposed to be their permanent home. In fact, you go back to the end of Genesis, and Joseph himself says something interesting. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph said to the sons of Israel, swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph himself says, this isn't home. There is another place that has been promised to us, and someday we will go there. When that happens, don't leave me here. Don't even leave my bones here. Take me with you. By the way, Moses is going to fulfill this promise, right? At the, towards the, when we get to the, ex, the actual exodus from Egypt, you're going to see Moses carry the bones of Joseph from this place because this is not home. And so he does that, right? So he, he predicts that. Well, now, after 300 years, Israel's grown large enough. They're ready to strike out on their own. But God does something maybe a little unusual. He allows them to experience the great difficulty of slavery under this Pharaoh who has forgotten who Joseph is. He's forgotten the history of how Israel even got there. He forgot all of the good that Joseph had ever done for his family. And now, he, all he sees is a threat. And so he places them under slavery. And so that's where we find Israel in chapter 1 at the beginning of Exodus. We find them stuck in slavery. They're stuck there. 
Why are they stuck? Well, for one, they find themselves under a powerful enemy. Israel finds itself stuck in slavery because of a powerful enemy. You got to remember Pharaoh, uh, which is it's good to be reminded. Pharaoh is his title. Okay, the king of Egypt is the most powerful man in the world, arguably at this time. No one, no one at this time in history dares threaten Egypt. They have the most military. They have the most technology. Thank you so much. They have the most technology. They have the most wealth. They have the best land. They're positioned in the best spot. No one, no one threatens Egypt at this point in their history. And so how possibly can a bunch of sheep herders, okay, a bunch of peasants, a bunch of folks that make bricks, excuse me, how can they possibly win and get their freedom? It's an unthinkable task. In fact, uh, it's interesting when they get out of Egypt and they're at the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh changes his mind and pursues them with the military, they turn around and they see the army pursuing them and they're like, we came all this way to die. I mean, they know they have no chance. Here's the thing, though. And again, this is, this is part of making some connections between what they're experiencing and what we experience. We don't experience that physical slavery. We don't experience being under the thumb of, a, of an incredibly powerful dictator who may be the most power, important man in the world at this time, but we do find ourselves under a powerful enemy of sin. A powerful enemy of sin. Romans makes it clear. If you read chapters 5 and 6 in Romans, Paul personifies sin as this evil ruler who has enslaved us to follow the passions and the desires of sin. And we have no escape. We have no escape. We're born into it. We are corrupted by it. And we have no, no will, really, to get out of it. And so we're trapped. That's what we face and there is no way for us to free ourselves. For one, the Bible describes us as dead in our sins. It describes us as blind people in our sins. In fact, the argument could be made and is the experience of many of us that we don't even realize that we are trapped until God opens our eyes. We're kind of like the frog that's in the water that slowly boils up. We don't even realize what's happening until it's too late. But we're trapped in, under the, hand, the powerful hand of an enemy, just as Egypt was, or just as Israel was. Second, we see in this stuck, as they're stuck in slavery, we see this burden and this affliction. Again, going back to chapter 1, it says, Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built the, the, for Pharaoh cities of Pithom and Ramses. And then going down to verse 13, so they, Egypt, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This was not just some, oh, well, I'll go to work from nine to five job. This was bitter living. This was hard living doing things that you did not want to do, more than likely being beaten and whipped. In fact, we see evidence of that in chapter 2 as Moses observes how these people were treated by the Egyptians, beaten and whipped over and over again for who knows what. They are treated not as humans, but rather as livestock. This is the life of Israel. 
This is the oppression that they find themselves in. Again, while we may not find ourselves in the physical aspects of slavery, certainly we suffer from the burden and affliction that sin places upon our lives. We see it in the world, a broken world around us, in families and relationships that are broken. We see it in famine. We see it in drought. We see it in disease and natural disasters. We see it in the stress, the discontentment, the dissatisfaction. We see it in the, in the depression that haunts so many. We see the outcomes and the burdens and the afflictions of sin. We don't think about it all the time, but it's there. In fact, many times we try to pretend that we have it all under control. I know that I've shared this story before, but it's applicable here again. But there, long, oh, several years ago, long time ago, there, were, there was a hair product company that was putting out a new shampoo or something, and so they decided the advertisement that they wanted to do was a beautiful model with beautiful long hair and a lion and, you know, the mane and the power and all that, okay? And so they're doing the shoot. Well, during the shoot, something goes tragically wrong, and the lion attacks the, the model, and they're interviewing and they're talking to the, the owner of the lion afterwards. He's like, I just don't understand. Like, I raised this lion from a cub. Like, I fed him from my own hand. I petted him. He slept at the foot of my bed. Like, he's played with my children. Like, it's fine. It's okay, right? Like, I don't, I don't understand. And they get done with the interview. And the, the reporter, when the cameras are off, looks at him and goes, did you forget that it was a lion? This is what they do. I think sometimes you and I allow sin to creep into our lives as a little, little thing, and we say, it's okay, I can handle it, I can take care of it, like it's not bothering anybody, it's not hurting anybody, and before we know it, it's grown a little bit, and it's taking up more space and more time and more resources, we're like, it's still okay, it's fine, it's not hurting anybody, and it becomes more and more a thing in our life until one day we wake up and we realize, my goodness, this thing has gotten huge. And I'm, I'm devoting a lot of time and a lot of resources to this. And then one day it breaks out. And our sin does hurt somebody else. And it does destroy a relationship. And it does lead to something unintended. Or it hurts us. And I think sometimes we sit there and certainly the world sits there and goes, but it was so cute and cuddly and fun and it wasn't hurting anybody. I don't understand what happens and sometimes someone, and sometimes it's God, says to us, did you forget that it was sin? This is what sin does. It burdens, it afflicts, it traumatizes, and ultimately it leads to death and sorrow. It was bad enough that Israel was stuck in slavery under a powerful foe with burden and affliction. But read what happens next. Pharaoh, still out of fear, of what Israel is becoming, decides that the best way to handle these, these individuals is to kill every male boy that is born. In fact, he ends chapter one, after a plan that, that doesn't work out with midwives, he commands his people. He says in verse 22 of chapter one, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but let every, every daughter live. Can you, can you imagine for a moment the joy of pregnancy 
tamped down by the fear of what might be. Can you imagine the miracle of birth giving way to the sorrow of having a boy and not a girl? You see, slavery for the Egyptians wasn't just about hard work. It was life and death. That's where they found themselves. Friends, we don't find ourselves in any different situation in the sense of this. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And we fight a life and death battle. We fight a life and death battle. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters in this life except for what you decide about Jesus Christ and your salvation. Because you, ha- you are stuck in slavery, and that slavery will, and that sin will burden and it will afflict you until you die. Or you can cry out. You can cry out to him. That's what the Israelites do. They send out a cry. It's a cry of desperation. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 2, that part of the verse that we read just a moment ago. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry of re- for rescue from slavery came up to God. It's a cry of desperation. I think there was a little part of the Egyptian, of the Israelites, sorry, there was a little part of the Israelites that thought, you know, everything was fine before this Pharaoh came up. Surely when this Pharaoh dies, everything will go back to the way it normally is. But he dies, and the next Pharaoh, probably his son, just carries on. Why not? There's free labor there, right? He, they carry on. And now it sinks in to the Israelite nation. This isn't ending anytime soon. This is going to be life. We're stuck here. We're stuck under burden and affliction. We're stuck under this, this cruelty and this death and sorrow. We're, this, is, this is what we are now. And they cry out. Because they don't have any other choice. Because they, this is not who they want to be. Because this is not where they want to be. And they cry out for help. In their desperation, they cry out to help to God. Why now, God? Why not before? Because I think at this point they realize it's going to take a miracle to get us out of here. It's going to take a miracle for us to get out of here. No one's coming. The next Pharaoh didn't change anything. The change of ruler didn't change anything. There is not a foreign army that's going to come in and set us free. Nobody cares that we're here. Nobody cares that we're slaves. Nobody's strong enough to even do that. Even if they wanted to, they couldn't walk into Egypt and set us free. We need something greater. Brothers and sisters, we need something greater. Probably the scariest point of becoming a Christian 
is when you hit that realization point that you realize the depths of your sin and the depths of the need of your salvation. And you realize, I can't do it. I can't be good enough to get to heaven. I can't go to church enough to get to heaven. I can't even pray enough to get to heaven. I need someone else, something else to save me. And we cry out to him. It's interesting, some of the words that are, are listed here are kind of interesting. It says that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Something important to understand here is that when the Bible says that God remembers somebody or remembers something, it's not because he forgot, okay? He's not like us who misplace every tangible thing that we own, okay? At some point or another, we all desperately search the house for our keys, We've all locked ourselves out, okay? We've, we've all done these things. That's not God, okay? He remembered. When the Bible says that he remembered his promise or that he remembers his people, what that is a marker of, that should be a flashing sign that says things are about to change. It's not that he forgot. It's not that he suddenly thinks. It's that he says, okay, now we can do something here. It's interesting when God's people get desperate and cry out to him for help and stop thinking that something else is going to change the situation and realize that only he can change the situation, God says, let's get to work. Let's do it. I love that last line. Verse 29, it says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What does he know? What does he know? He knows his people. He knows who they are. He knows right where they're at. He knows right what they're, what, what, exactly what they're going through. What does he know? He knows his people. He knows what to do. He knows the plan. He knows what's going to happen. What does he know? He knows that the time is now. He's been waiting. And now it's time to act. It's interesting that you hear this cry you hear this cry from the people of Israel to God, that God hears it, that he remembers, that he says, now. He says, he knew. And what's the very next thing you read? Now Moses. And you get the story of the burning bush. This is a cry of desperation. It's a cry of help. And it is a cry that is heard. Something strikes me as interesting, though. As you read through chapter 1, and as you read through most of chapter 2, the people are, are in slavery. They're afflicted. They're burdened. They're, they're desperate. You don't see the cry until the end of chapter 2. What's happening in chapter 2 before the cry? It's the birth of Moses, the Redeemer the one that would be the mediator between Israel. It is the salvation of that baby Moses from the order of Pharaoh. It's the finding of that baby by Pharaoh's own daughter and then her taking him from the water and instantly falling in love with him and deciding, I'm going to raise him. It's his sister being there in the reeds to say, hey, do you need somebody to kind of babysit him for a while, while, he, while until he grows up? And 
the sister, Miriam, taking Moses back to his mom. And now his mom, instead of being fearful about the loss of her baby, now is being paid to take care of him. There's a lot of moms right now that are going, that sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Okay? Being paid. And this baby grows now no longer in fear for his life, but he grows under the protection of Pharaoh's daughter until he gets old enough. And then he moves into the palace and he grows in wisdom and academics and knowledge and skill there. God is doing all of these things. You see, amazing truth is that God's plan doesn't wait on his people to call. God's plan does not wait on his people to realize they need, have a need. He already had it in motion so that when they realize their desperation, when they realize their need for a savior and they called out to him and he heard those prayers, he said, let's go. And he shows up to a grown man, Moses, and says, let's go back to Egypt. It's time. His plan is already in motion. Friend, if you're sitting here in this moment, in this moment, in this time, and you're hearing this message, and maybe for the first time your eyes are open, your ears are hearing, yeah, that's me. I'm stuck. I'm unsatisfied. I'm unhappy. I'm afflicted. I'm burdened. I know exactly what you're talking about. I know. I need something. Understand this, that 2,000 years ago, a baby was born. He lived a perfect life, and he died on a cross for you, and he rose on the third day so that he may deliver to you freedom. His plan did not wait on you. It was already in motion so that he comes to this moment in this time and can hand you grace. Brothers and sisters, he did not wait for you to come to that realization. He already had it in motion. And so the question this morning, this question this, the question this morning is not, will he help? Does he have a plan? The question this morning is, will you cry out? Will you reach out to him? Will you let him save you? This morning, I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you, you've never given your life to him. This morning, you are stuck. And maybe for the first time, you realize the consequences of being stuck. You realize the consequences of, of sin, and that it leads to death, that it leads to, to hell. And you're like, I, I need change. I need a savior. I want a different life now, much less later. Like, I need that. This morning, will you cry out to him? Will you ask him to forgive you of your mistakes? Will you believe that he is, Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he died for you and that he rose on the third day to win victory for you? And will you commit to following him for the rest of your life? Will you allow him to free you? Brother, sister, maybe you're sitting here and you've allowed some sin into your life and you've allowed it to creep and to grow and to fester 
and you keep telling yourself, it's not going to hurt anybody, it's not hurting anybody, nobody knows about it, it's fine. Will you hear this message today, this morning, and realize it may not hurt you today, it may not hurt you tomorrow, but sin is sin, and it always breaks out. It always harms. And will you give it to him? Lord, forgive me. I've allowed this thing back in my life. Will you let him set you free from that? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we thank you that you are a God that hears. Lord, that you hear the cries and the pleas of your people. You hear us in our times of great victory, but you hear us in our times of our great desperation, and that you already have plans lined out. Lord, nothing surprises you that you already have all of these things in place waiting if we will just say, I need you. Father, I pray. Pray that you would get us to that place or that you would give us the courage to step out, that you would give us the, the need for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you have set us free. You have chosen you. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.